I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello everyone, welcome to the Midweek Show. This, this week we're going to do the Beast of Jovidon. So we're going back to the time period of 1764 to 1767. Um, it's, it's a little bit of, actually quite a bit of unknown. So before we get started with that, Tom, would you like to interject a few things? Yeah, absolutely. And Will, I got to say, this was one of my favorite stories. This is something that I've actually was interested in for, for a long time. And so I was, I was really thrilled when I got the Beast of Jovidon, uh, document from you. It's, um, it reminds me of our a little bit of the interview we did with Natalia back last January, episode 97. I'm actually going to put a link in this episode's description because you're gonna when you hear this, you'll probably want to go back and listen to that. But before we go any further, I just want to say if you if you enjoy this sort of content, click the like button, click subscribe, and click the bell. And if you want to support the channel, you can do so. We have a link in the description. All right, and we're good to go. All right, everyone, stand by. The reading will be starting shortly, and then Tom and I will be back for our comments afterwards. The Beast of Chevoudon, true story of a monster of France. La Bête de Chevoudon was a real, wolf-like monster that prowled the Auvergne and South Dordogne areas of France during the years 1764 to 1767, killing about 100 people, often in bizarre circumstances. Every effort to stop her failed, and she became nationally infamous. The king, Louis XV, took a personal interest, partly because she caused unrest in an area of tension and potential revolution. Many explanations, mutant, prehistoric beast, etc., were put forward at the time and during the two centuries since, but none has ever been generally accepted. The important, firm fact is that sufficient evidence remains to prove Labette really did exist and was not just a myth. Among all the popular monster mysteries, she was unique. She left behind 100 bodies, proving herself real and guilty beyond doubt. This article gives a balanced view on Libet, about whom surprisingly little has been written outside France, where she remains a household name to respect or ridicule, according to choice. We always laugh at what we secretly fear. The true tale of La Bête de Chevoudan is like a Shakespeare play, loving a plain woman or being a member of Parliament. The more you put in, the more there is to take away. A greater depth of information than has previously been available in English on her career is therefore offered, all based on recorded facts and including no fiction. 
the French rightly claim their wine and this mystery as the world's best. You can drink more deeply of either at a price. For wine, the price is only money and a headache, but the price for La Bette's is never again to feel quite safe walking alone in a sunny country lane. In France, she is quoted as the greatest enigma of history. Prowl on, but do look over that left shoulder occasionally. And little maids all in a row. On at least five occasions, beasts rumored to have been Libet, ranging from large wolves to a baboon-like animal were killed, but in all cases except the last, a not very formidable deformed wolf-like creature killed in June 1767, she recommenced killing shortly afterwards. For example, on September 16, 1764, a wolf known as Le Loup de Prodel was killed and assumed to be Labette. She took only until the 26th to kill a girl at Tort and prove the assumption wrong. Following the death of a little girl on an unlucky 13th, only her bonnet and clogs were ever found, Labette was reported shot in an abbey estate by a M. Antoine as Le Loup de Chazé on September 21, 1765, but was seen at Marchiac on the 26th, 27th, and 28th of that month. She started a new two-year killing career on December 21st, the shortest day of the year, and a long, silent night for little Agnes Morgich. The winter wind hit a very sharp bite indeed, and that Christmas cost Agnes more than the usual arm and a leg. Quote, insufficient remains for burial, unquote, not enough to fill even a small stocking. Labette had herself a merry little Christmas, and stopped the carol singers from making their usual killing, because nobody dared open doors barricaded against her. Snowy New Year 1765 yielded, for example, the head of little Marie-Jean Rousset of Milanets, recognizable only by her staring eyes, everything else being cleanly gnawed away. One poor woman, over sixty years old, nicknamed La Sarabonde after the triple tempo Spanish dance, could find no grass for her cow, her only possession, because of the deep snow. She led it to a marshy area where sometimes a little greenery penetrated through. La Sarabonde's body was ambushed for three days, but La Crafty Bête did not return. She liked marshy areas because her agility and relatively light weight enabled easy escape from mounted pursuers, whom she often deliberately led into mires and left floundering. Even the local men liked playing this trick on the arrogant and gaudily dressed dragoons they regarded as a costly nuisance and useless for pursuing Labette. One father and son, Antoine and Jean Chastel, everyday country folk, were in fact imprisoned for it, possibly in the cellar, still to be seen, of an old school, in Souge, en route to the dungeons in Mende. They misled some hunters, proudly led by a royal huntsman wearing king's uniform. Guess who ended up sitting on his horse, stuck in the mud? The Chastels might have gotten away with it, had they not threatened him with a gun when he complained. Another attack with an agricultural theme was that on a farmer who rose early and started scything his wheat harvest by moonlight. He saw a movement coming towards him, but the animal itself was hidden by the tall wheat stalks. His first thought could well have been that it was one of the farm dogs coming for a fuss, 
but it proved to be Labette coming for his blood. He managed to fight her off with his scythe, but on arriving home was unable to speak for four hours, being paralyzed with terror. One typical attack occurred at dusk, locally called, quote, the hour between dog and wolf, unquote, on September 6, 1765, at Estretz. A woman was tending her humble cottage garden amongst her garden shed when Labette seized her by the throat, beginning with her usual aperitif of blood, sucked, not stirred, and did not cease until neighbors armed with axes, sickles, and forks arrived. The woman died, but Labette, having enjoyed her liquid refreshment, lived on. Another woman, a servant, going to Mass at Escures on April 29, 1765, saw Labette and tried to delay her because men were approaching fast. She paid for her bravery by losing face, throat, and life. There was the mysterious case of the three women of Pompirac going to church near the wood of Favar when a dark man offered to escort them through the wood. They refused, and before leaving, he touched one of them with a fur-covered hand. Dragoons, arriving on the scene, warned the terrified women not to go into the wood, because Labette had just been seen there. Two women of Escures, also on the way to church, had a similar experience in an area where, unknown to them, she had just been seen by several people. This time they saw that the man accosting them was covered in fur only when his shirt blew open in the wind. It was said at the time that Labette, instrument of the devil, was trying to stop them from going to Mass. As with all good monster-murder mysteries, there has to be the wicked aristocrat solution. In this case, he was supposed to have hidden among the nuns of the Abbey of Mercois, the abbess of which was known to take contributions from fugitives. This solution to the Labette mystery is ridiculed by serious students of the subject, but perhaps he did exist. There are other instances where appearances or attacks by Labette were associated with human presence, including a famous witnessed sighting from a cottage window by a stream in the moonlight. There were also the two bodies found roughly reclothed after death. Fact or imagination? The relationship of these occurrences to Robert Louis Stevenson and Brothers Grimm is referred to later. Scarlet billows start to spread. Too many horrors, another being what happened to Madame Merlet. She had her eyes scratched out, and Labette spat a stream of her blood over approaching rescuers. No, toujours les polites that time. On June 21, 1765, the witch's Sabbath, when the weather was warm enough for the naughtier country folk to dance naked round bonfires, she killed two people and savaged a third. Was this yet more evidence of her apparent sensitivity to Gothic atmosphere? She was often reported in places with supernatural associations. Or did she just fancy a hot takeaway with no French dressing? Either way, she came back for seconds and thirds to go. Also in 1765, her busiest year, the case occurred at Cheval, where a father, a tenant farmer of good reputation, was bound and imprisoned by the fiery Captain Duhamel for failing immediately to report an attack to the authorities. He had delayed doing this only to attend to his child, 
whose larynx had been bloodily torn open, a specialty of Labette, and to nurse his seriously ill mother. Many attacks remained unreported for fear of becoming involved with ponderous and ineffective bureaucracies, rather like on housing estates today. Six-year-old Marguerite Lebray was killed in front of six firm witnesses, all testifying to curate Gilbergu at La Paz Lossière, who also recorded reports of smaller, boar-like bets seen three days later. These records of sturdy porcine or feline beasts, in addition to our rakish, wildly graceful, wolf-like lady, are too frequent to ignore and add another dimension to the mystery. Either way, as was affirmed by Deneval, the king's chief wolf-catcher, the greatest expert on wolf-hunting in France, Labette was definitely no wolf. Another odd fact is that some measurements of distances between her footprints showed she could make leaps of over 28 feet on level ground. If true, this weighs in favor of the athletic build rather than the stocky one. Reserve judgment on this point. Perhaps the bravest struggle of the three most famous ones against Labette, Portefeuille, the schoolboy, Valet, la pousselle, and la femme Juvet, was that by the puny Madame Jean Juvet on March 9, 1765, at Fort de Brion, where she fought to protect three of her six children with only her bare hands and rocks snatched up from the ground. One child died, and Madame Juvet herself was injured the king gave her a reward of 300 livres. The incident was vividly described thus. Quote, the skin of his skull was falling to the right, his cheek was torn, his lip and nose torn away to the root. He died within three days. The same evening, Labette devoured a boy at Chanelet and was seen again the next day at Estival. These events caused great consternation throughout Chez Duvan, and Auvergne, the floor of one meeting hall collapsed from the sheer weight of people crowding in, trying to organize a hunt for her. There was the case of the girl, her little brother having been snatched from her, who bravely rushed into the wood after him and found him peacefully lying there on his back, apparently intact, but in fact lacking liver, entrails, and blood. The girl who cried to warn her sister, quote, there's a big wolf behind you, unquote, turned and ran, only to see her sister's head bowling along the ground. The little boy who, on July 21, 1765, went to fetch the family cows from their walled meadow near the village of Auvers, and simply never returned. At the time, Labette was being sought locally by the wily aristocrat M. Antoine, the king's gun-bearer, who posted his hunters in pairs on paths all over the district, there has always been a question mark over his policy. Why did he post guards mainly at night, when Labette usually attacked in the daytime? The first thing the searchers found was the boy's shoes standing in the road, then all of his clothes lying almost untorn in the meadow. Of the boy himself, nothing was ever found. Beast or human criminal that time. Enclosed meadows were particularly dangerous, because the dry stone walls, with their mossy covering, similar to those of the Lake District, camouflaged her perfectly before she pounced. Jumping down from the top of walls and rocky outcrops was one of her favorite methods of attack, especially dangerous to those tending flocks, 
who had built their fires up against them for a little more shelter from the Marjid mountain winds. At least they died warm. It was said Labette would plow straight through a flock of sheep, scattering them like leaves to get at the shepherdess. However, she was much more wary of cows, which were sometimes found spattered with the blood she had spat at them. Her lack of fear of fire, dogs, and people, especially women and children, but fear of cattle are strange but consistent features. That so much detailed information still exists is thanks to Le Procès Verbal, or PV, an old and sensible French legal procedure often mentioned in May Gray-style detective films, where evidence is formally noted by officials in front of witnesses. There are volumes of them, often confirmed in church records of burial ceremonies, giving in detail Libet as the cause of death, and signed by witnesses, priests, and other respected persons. One struggle against her is particularly clearly recorded by the curate of Besset. Another curate, Olier of Losiria, got even closer to the action by bandaging a girl's wounds and making a measured sketch of a footprint which was similar to but larger than those previously recorded. Suspicious, isn't it, how so many churchmen occupied themselves with Labette, both before and after her reign? Or is it simply they were the only intellectual, literate, and socially responsible people present in every sizable village? This point merits careful thought by the conspiracy theorists. Her consumption of clerics was limited to one convent novice near Grezes in 1767. No priests, although she ate the cheek of a relative of Abbe Porchet, her most famous chronicler, whose house, by the way, with its strange, bet-like carving on the door lintel, still stands. She liked her victims in skirts, but obviously knew la différence. The preference of Libet for women and children might have been simply because they were more readily available. They were the ones tending the lonely mountainside flocks in ones or twos, whereas the men did the heavier work in the farm fields, often in groups and armed with spades, scythes, etc. All parties were experienced wolf repellers and had only contempt for these cowardly nuisances. A few stones usually sent them packing, unless they were rabid, and if they were, their messy bites were nothing like the elegant surgical work of Libet. In March to June 1766, there were 14 attacks by her within six miles of Polalak. Not bad for a reportedly dead bet. Incidentally, the old village concluded its history tragically, being burned by the German army in 1944. It is perhaps now haunted by even sadder spirits than those of Labette's victims, who were killed by a hungry animal for food and not for the politics of greed. First Catch Your Bet Many wanted posters appeared. For example, this one in August 1764, only slightly parodied, made a lot of profit for the printers. Quote, Reward 12,000 livres if dead, known as Lebette, but kills under three aliases. Reddish-brown with dark ridged stripe down the back. Resembles wolf slash hyena, but big as a donkey. Long, gaping jaw, six claws, pointy upright ears, and supple furry tail. Mobile like a cat's and can knock you over. Cry, more like horse neighing than wolf howling. Last seen by people mostly now dead. If she approaches you, 
please leave behind a signed copy of this poster, unquote. Many pictures were circulated, some very elegant ones from leading Paris art houses such as Bessette, Corbier, Labelle, Millard, and Montherre. Even some from Germany. Prints are still available. From August 1764 on the King's orders, the world's greatest ever hunting aristocracy was ranged against Labette, with all of its resources of chateau thoroughbred horses from royal stables for the leading huntsmen, and for others, hacks from humbler stables, wearing darned Ashencourt jackets and often rode to their deaths. There were specialist wolf, boar, and bear hounds, plus as many echelons of trackers, hunters, and master hunters as NHS management grades, but wasting less money, having no computers. She didn't stand a chance. Or did she? Note that no suspicious human footprints, sensibly shooed or otherwise, were ever found near a kill, although Labette's own easily identifiable long-clawed prints were there too many times, including all over the riverside mud of her famous fight with La Pucelle, the servant girl who successfully fought her off with a spear made from a spindle. These footprints, recognized on the spot by three leaders of different hunting parties, bloodstains, and supporting evidence from a 16-year-old girl witness, were all recorded in the procès verbal, helping to confirm the incident as genuine. Contemporary pictures of the fight still exist, some simple, some stylized, as one would expect. One fresh body was found lying out in snow, with no tracks or footprints around it at all. Impossible, of course, but typical of the strange happenings high in the Marjorie Mountains, a harsh region, which the locals describe as nine months of winter and three months of hell. Regarding stories surrounding Libet, it is unlikely she founded the Plump Partners Dating Agency, but against the fiction or hoaxes, some admitted, there are 100 horrors, mostly with witnesses, graves, names, parishes, and dates as evidence. Grim facts and bloodless human body parts prove her existence, even if the more lurid tales are suspect. One indisputable fact is that Labette did succeed, aided by bad weather and economic problems with the cloth industry, in dragging the region down to a state of poverty and famine. Women and children were too terrified to tend their sheep and cattle out on the lonely pastures, and the men were constantly called away from field work to hunt Labette. The resulting neglect was sufficient to tip the scales of such a fragile economy into a decline. Louis XV and his court took her very seriously. She prowled a region where Huguenot Jesuit tensions were acute, and the king feared she, plus the arms massing there, would ignite the revolution whose tumbrils were perhaps just beginning to rumble in the distance. Remember, the Chevoudan was part of the independent states, whose recognition of the French crown sovereignty was not at the time fully ratified. Problems arising from the antipopes in Avignon and the great schism of 1378 to 1417 still echoed, and the city was not annexed to France until 1791. Although dissolute, Louis XV was not a king who killed more people than he had to. His nickname was La Bien-Amie, but whether this meant he was well-liked, 
or he got a lot of his loving, is subtly and Frenchly left unclear. Being king in those pre-revolutionary years must have been one hell of a job without the beast who is eating everybody making life even more difficult. La Russe, the main French encyclopedia, even in its recent edition, still states the whole of France concerned itself about her for some time. The most dangerous animal in the world is the intelligent French female, and poor Louis XV had at least three to contend with. Madame Pompadour, Madame L'Encomtesse du Barry, who dined at five, copying the king, a politically significant fact, according to Dumas, the queen's necklace, and La Bette, who also dined in the daytime, but less formally. One madame lost her hair, but La Bette kept hers while crunching many others. Unlike the curvy courtesans, she never embraced the fleshy king, who died from smallpox, a million little bites instead of one big one. His successor died of the biggest bite of all, la guillotine. So perhaps Louis XV did not handle French affairs, including La Bette, too badly after all, even if he did, aided of course by Madame Pompadour, bankrupt the state. The importance of Libet in French history is virtually unknown outside France. Like BSE, they couldn't get rid, so each blamed everybody else. There is no lack of conspiracy theories, especially relating to the king's anti-Jesuit policies, which peaked in 1761, two to three years before she appeared. Certainly people exploited her for political purposes, but equally certainly, there was a real, dreadful entity conveniently there to exploit. Labette's total effect on history was, perhaps, beneficial. If she took only 100 potentially revolting peasants' children's lives, but stopped war between Huguenots and Jesuits, later saving from La Guillotine the Aristos, who were recognized as having helped starving peasants fight her, she leaves a moral credit balance. You never know. She might be canonized one day. Often, two or three versions are recorded of stories about her life and presumed deaths. There are, for example, two versions of the La Pucelle, the spindle-packing heroine story, when she was called upon by Antoine to identify the body of the Lou de Chazé at the Chateau of Bessette. One says she firmly refused to identify it as Labette, the other that she did, but only doubtfully, from a wound on its shoulder, possibly made by her spear. There is more than one version of the Lou de Chazé story. One states it is genuine, another is fraudulent. Incidentally, the skin of this wolf, Antoine's kill, is said to have been destroyed by the National Museum in Paris only early this century, it having lost all its hair. Why would they destroy one of the most famous relics in all France unless it was, as many suspected, a fake, or, X-Files style, something people were not to know about? like the hieroglyphics on wooden tablets discovered in 1722 at the bases of the 593 giant statues on Easter Island. Controversy and mystery still follow the bet today, as persistently as she stalked her terrified victims 200 years ago. Goaded by the wrath of a king lumbered with a naked wooden rocking horse in his Versailles garden, awaiting her never-to-arrive skin, the desperate nobles were reduced to the argument that Labette could not exist because it was impossible she had escaped their mighty searches. She did not know this, so carried on killing. Can you be completely impossible, and yet exist? Certainement, if you are French. 
Chastel's deformed wolf-like creature shot at Sogne d'Oivies on about June 20th, 1767, must remain as one but only one of the possible answers to the puzzle. Diagrams of its deformities, for example, of the jaws, still exist. If it was the solution, it was almost certainly contrived, and not the whole story, the remainder of which is said to involve human elements and various collusions. It is unlikely the popular Marquis d'Apcher, the leader of the hunt, cheated. It was not his elegant style, and cost him the best excuse ever to miss church on Sundays. Which would you rather do as a handsome 19-year-old Marquis? Go to church, or gallop around rescuing grateful Mademoiselle from the very jaws of Labette? Suspicion falls on others. This involved tale has already created a semi-fictional novel and more arguments than Liverpool Council. It is for smoky campfires on long nights. Keep an open mind. Incidentally, the gun which shot this creature was bought by Abbe Pierre Porchet at Saint-Julien in 1888, and he writes about hearing of its whereabouts from a woman on a train. He met her by chance, having entered her carriage, because he feared she might be molested by two unruly soldiers. In the Chevoudan district, wolves were often caught in deep pit traps, dug and concealed so the wolves fell in. Bait was sometimes scattered round the traps. Because people thought Labette could jump out of normal pits, very deep ones were dug, sometimes of complex structure, for example, octagonal in shape and interconnected by tunnels. The purpose of these is not clear. The bait was often unburied carcasses or parts of her victims, left out in spite of protests from priests wanting early and decent burials. She never fell for it. One desperate measure adopted against Labette was the extensive use of poison, sometimes applied across whole mountainsides. The king's wolf-catcher, Monsieur Denival, the surly Norman squire, who had 1,274 wolves to his credit, 1,200 previous ones and a share of 74 while hunting Labette, was an early advocate of poisoning. This was after his hounds, the best in France and excellent trackers but more suited to the flat, open countryside of Normandy than the rugged, wooded Chevoudan, had failed to catch her. Another supporter of poisoning, at least for a time, was M. Lefont, the syndic, a very important local official, possibly the cleverest of all those hunting Labette. The chief poisoner was a M. Mercier, with his assistant, he was particularly busy during April and May 1767, buying live dogs, then poisoning them with very big doses to provide ready-poisoned carcasses. The regional governor, Saint-Priest, finally ordered operations to cease, because so many innocent domestic and other animals were dying, including the dogs providing the poisoned carcasses that killed even more dogs. A serious matter for the mountain shepherds to whom loss of their partners could mean starvation. Specialist poisons supposed to kill only wolves were formulated, but they didn't work, killing either all or nothing. Elaborate traps, decoys, and ambushes proved equally ineffective. It is hard to imagine our gourmet bet, rarely an animal eater, preferring a hard, cold, dead dog to a soft, warm, live milkmaid. Who would? The attacks did, however, taper off and finally cease at the height of the poisoning program. Like so many things connected with Labette, or Bets, it is impossible to say what was effect 
and what was coincidence. By this time, things had gotten so bad that there is even record of dogs eating human bodies left by Libet, although the possibility was quickly ruled out that the basic mystery could be explained either by the activities of packs of wild dogs or by wolves acquiring cravings for human flesh. The local French called the wolves that ate human flesh carnivorous, although the ordinary sheep-eating ones could hardly be called vegetarian. Who stole my heart away? Whoever she was, she was no maiden to choose for a goodnight kiss, unless you have unusual tastes, or your new tax return is late. With her, the last waltz meant just that. She killed through sheer speed and surprise, not brute strength and boldness, evidencing a careful, professional judgment of risk against profit. The index-linked civil servants tried to prevent her from working, like they always feel compelled to do, with entrepreneurs, but she survived and kept them in jobs, too. The church also was ostensibly against this working girl making an honest living, but she proved to be prayer-proof. For example, several churches were the rendezvous for processions of supplicants on August 18th and 19th, 1765, and other dates. Besset, Notre-Dame de Bellu, Ventigues, Pebrac, and Polalac, an old church probably destroyed in war, were some of them. There was ceremonial movement of icons of the Madonna between various churches, and some of them can still be seen in places to which they were delivered by the processions 200 years ago. Study of frequency and location of attacks, using computers and backs of envelopes, supports the contention that more than one beast prowled, but locals then and now reject the idea of several, although many reports exist of smaller animals seen both alone and with their mother. To the French, La Bette is an Edith Piaf and will remain so. Both were unique stars with neighing voices and no regrets. On the other hand, who ever heard of a French lady lacking boyfriends? Joan of Arc possibly accepted. Perhaps the Wolver, that burly but unaggressive Scottish werewolf allegedly seen in the Shetlands this century, should have been introduced to our fiery madame to cool her temper. By now, those farmers could be assailed by wicked Lady Macbeth, plus bairns playing bagpipes. Only French farmers deserve such suffering. It is best to laugh at dark corners. Another overseas candidate as Libet, in addition to the legendary Nandi bear from Africa, who also had a penchant for rapid head removal, is the famous, mythical, and dangerous Canadian beast called the Wendigo. Elusive frequents lonely forests, and loves children. A French-Canadian bet would, after all, be appropriate. The thylacine marsupial wolf of Tasmania, alive as recently as 1934, and still occasionally reported, for which a cooking recipe exists, no, not Vindaloo, is easily dismissed as too puny for the job. However, tales strong enough to knock people over were possessed by larger prehistoric carnivorous marsupials, like the thylacolio. Such an unusual tale often appears in Labette descriptions, as do other kangaroo-like features. Another Australian contender, although an unlikely one, being relatively small, is an animal still occasionally reported, but which probably became extinct in the 19th or early 20th century. This is the Tasmanian or Queensland tiger, the subject of a TV program which was marsupial and rather like a wolf with claws, probably resembling the extinct tiger dog of Japan, 
which is another possible but uninvestigated candidate. One report of Labette describes a strange animal killed and buried in the Pinoles region in July 1766. There had been deaths there since 1765. It was recorded by Curate Bergier, whose description resembles that of a very large baboon, but unfortunately only limited information is available, and the killings did not cease with the death of this beast. Crude drawings remain. Romulus and Remus were allegedly suckled by a wolf, so perhaps a human returned the compliment to an animal, which might explain where she obtained support, if any was needed. There are other accounts of humans being brought up by animals. Part of the Chevoudan area was renamed Aviron, shortly after the French Revolution in 1789. Books titled The Wild Boy of Aviron, who was allegedly a wolf child, were published in 1962 and 1976. Not previously recorded in the Labette saga, registered here almost certainly for the first time in this context, is the fact that a strange and haunting drawing originated in Italy in 1495 of a woman monster with claws and horse-like head washed up from the river Tiber. This is yet another unexplained beast story that had an effect on the Catholic Church. The idea that Labette was a human-animal hybrid rears its particularly revolting head in some books. Such are reputed to have existed, almost all degenerate and shambling creatures. For example, there is even an obscure story that a man-beast monster was brought back by the Royal Navy and kept in secret on a small, rocky islet off the south coast, being led around on a leash. Obviously not her, or it would have been Hello Sailor Burger. Such an aristocrat of killing as Labette deserves to keep her thoroughbred reputation, not that of a monster from a horror comic. On January 29, 1997, the first edition of a Fortean TV series on The Unexplained was broadcast by Channel 4. The program reported on a strange vampire-like beast, the Goat Sucker of Puerto Rico, nicknamed El Chubacabra. This creature has killed 150 goats in the Canavanas region by sucking their blood and liver through neat incisions in the neck. Other animals, cattle, rabbits, and chickens, have also been killed, but so far no humans. The army has been called to investigate. Drawings from eyewitness reports show it to resemble no known animal, being kangaroo-like, fast, strong, and able to stand on two feet. Footprints of three-clawed toes have been found at killing sites. The drawings and TV representations bear a resemblance to Labette, who also was usually reported as first licking or sucking blood from victims, devouring them only afterwards. Reports have been received from U.S. and elsewhere of attacks on animals by similar beasts. On November 19, 1997, a program based on El Chubacabras, referred to as a weird creature in Mexican folklore, was broadcast in the X-Files series, but strayed from the original vampire-like monster legend, so evidence is sketchy. The animal, as reported, shows similarities to Libet, but there are big differences. Its incisions are neat, whereas hers could be untidy. You can't call tearing off heads neat. It has been reported as having three clawed toes. She was not often reported with three, but hers were also sometimes said to be clawed. If El Chubacabras ever graduates almost exclusively to humans, operates mainly in the daytime, and adopts less tidy eating habits, we can perhaps say 
Labette has returned. According to the TV program, explanations considered include an alien or the outcome of genetic experiments at an American military base. These trains of thought mirror those which have taken place, so far unsuccessfully, over the last 230 years to explain Labette. For example, the possibility that Labette was an alien or caused by alien experiments has recently been studied in France and views published. Closing scenes of the film Species show a female alien who, although furless, uncomfortably resembles Labette in speed, style, and murderous intentions. Before dismissing the alien concept, remember that for over two centuries clever people have unsuccessfully sought a solution to the Bette mystery. Under these circumstances, the apparently impossible must be admitted as a possibility. No, that is not quite what Sherlock Holmes said, although his comment is more perceptive and not so relevant. The classic black-and-white film The Night of the Demon has a large, unforgettable clawed monster, one of the best ever. Labette can reasonably be described in appearance and behavior as a faster-moving mini-version of this and also resembles other traditional demons. Funny how our concept of wolf-like monsters has changed so little over the centuries and is consistent worldwide. The Hindus believe in a terrible, blood-drinking feminine spirit called Kali, dedicated to destroying life to allow for recreation. She is sometimes represented as a clawed, hideous woman and has been worshipped by Tuggies for more thousands of years than Christians have centuries. Victims are left with broken necks, mutilated, in shallow graves. To quote her fellow worker Shiva, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. In a hot Bengal night, the life-recycling concept of Kali does not seem as unlikely as it does by a De Quincey-style Lake District fireside in November. Some writings about Libet refer to mysterious caves, prehistoric bones, sometimes collected for fertilizer, and suspiciously knowledgeable individuals, but one question apparently never researched is whether any of the famous cave drawings and paintings in the area show an animal, of known or unknown species, that might have been Libet's ancestor. The recent discovery of important caves containing 20,000-year-old drawings of animals, ranging from rhinos to mammoths in the neighboring vallon pointe d'Arc region to the southeast to the direction from which she was first reported, gives food for thought. A famous Cro-Magnon cave painting of an odd, upright creature called the Sorcerer exists at Les Trois Frères. At nearby Le Moustier, there is a cave containing the world's earliest known ceremonial burial that of a Neanderthal nicknamed Nandy. There is a museum at Chiak showing remains of animals going back 2.5 million years. Prehistoric people drew and fought animals which have become extinct, or have they, only since the council erected the new play area at Stonehenge. Like our own House of Lords, the Chevoudon district contains some of the world's best preserved and most numerous remnants of early intelligent human activity. Incidentally, she was last witnessed in September 1767 strolling peacefully along in Sarlat, also a prehistoric cave area. In establishing the identity of Labette, one apparently neglected information source is old family records. The use of surnames, especially those with titles, is particularly well controlled and documented in France, so the descendants of most people involved are traceable. Unpublished information hides for centuries in old drawers and teenage daughters' bedrooms. 
Pity the French never ask you home. Truth may sparkle one day to someone with long bar bill and pickled liver who, Western hero style, strides into local brassieres and asks questions, finally expiring as Labette's last victim, number 96 or 100 according to which statistics you accept. Liver, raw, no onions, was always her favorite entree, following a warm-blood consommé, free lunch for the aristocrat of killing who dined royally in daylight. Plump leather tomes, written in comfortable Auvergne sunshine, expansively affirm she was not hyena, wolf, or human, but none tells what she damn well was. Entries on a postcard, please. No prizes, not after the blind dinner date. Sirsituha Sela. This will kill that, Victor Hugo. She last definitely killed on June 18, 1767, at Dej. Fittingly, her final victim is the unknown warrior, an unidentified little girl. Sadly, we can never know her name or if she was meant to bear four pretty children. All right, a paradox, but so is everything about Libet. Although there were outbreaks of killings by very similar beasts in the 17th and 19th centuries, after this last one, Libet, as Libet, vanishes from the world scene, although some husbands might reasonably claim to have married her. A meticulous and outstandingly elegant French hunting weapons book by Dominique Venet, a man, by the way, published in 1984, refers briefly but carefully to her on pages 113 and 114. English comments made at the time consist mainly of newspaper articles, indignantly recorded by Abbe Porchet in his famous book, which scathingly report that a French army of 12,000 had been routed by a beast. Some beast! It is surprising so little has been written on Libet outside France when you consider her splendid achievements as a serial killer. Jack the Ripper officially killed only five victims, all women over a period of ten autumn weeks, not as foggy as films depict, whereas she often had a mixed bag of four or five within a single week. For example, during a snowy 1st to 7th of January, 1765, and another 95 over three years, once killing two and maiming one on a midsummer solstice. As usual, the French do it better, and she elegantly beat Jack's score by nearly a century not out. No doubt would have killed J.R. too, given one demi-chance. One of the few considered English comments appears in Walking Through France by Nyon, on pages 142 and 155. The dates he mentions are confusing and apparently incorrect, suggesting bet activity as far back as 1745, which is earlier than elsewhere recorded. He describes Saint-Jury, where he stayed, as being ravaged by both Labette in 1764 and in 1944 by the Waffren SS from the Das Reich division. Even in 1988, Nyon admits he was glad to be sleeping within the friendly claw-proof walls of the Hotel de Bess, and not outside under thin canvas. Incidentally, a Monsieur Bess of Bessier wrote a manuscript on sighting and chase of December 23, 1767, by a young subaltern called Dulaurier. He had just drawn his saber to strike Labette when she jumped over a wall and ran across a marsh where his horse could not follow. A 1992 expensive Canadian book, Wolf Hunting in France in the Reign of Louis XV, by R. H. Thompson, 
deals extensively with Libet, contending that there can be satisfactory explanations based on large wolves for all her depredations. On the other hand, Deneval, a Norman squire known for his surly directness, recognized as the greatest wolf expert in the 18th century France and having the advantage of actually being in charge on the spot, firmly and officially asserted that there was indeed something very strange going on in Chevoudan, and that, quote, Lebet is no wolf, unquote. Perhaps that was just because he couldn't catch it. Which one do we believe? Another recent article writer, C.H.D. Clark, is an expert in North American wolves. Firstly, he reprimands those who refer to Lebet as a legend, strongly pointing out that she was definitely no legend, but was hard fact and really existed. His second important observation is, quote, The certainty that no rabies was involved meant that there was something going on that was without precedent, unquote. Rabid wolf attacks are clumsy compared with Labette's elegant handbaggings. He considers that one explanation of Labette is there was more than one, and they resulted from a natural crossbreeding between large dog, possibly of an Italian hunting breed, and wild wolf. His explanation for the Bet phenomenon is supported by reports published elsewhere of vigorous hybrids between wolf and large dog. For example, the wolf of Argenton, killed in 1884. Another candidate for crossbreeding with wolf might be the Lycaon, a carnivorous wild hunting dog still active and feared in Africa. It is perhaps a little small, but is very savage and cunning. A cross with the wolf would be a formidable animal and a litter of them loose in a district could well be taken as an abnormal phenomenon. The presence of African animals in the Chevoudan is recorded in cave drawings over thousands of years, and even today there are attempts to re-establish them in large game parks. Clark has noticed the connections between the works of Grimm, Stevenson, and Labette. Grimm apparently was a friend of Rousseau. A poem was written on the famous fight between Portefeuille, protecting his six child companions, and Labette on January 12, 1765, at Villeray d'Apche. Robert Louis Stevenson possibly based his beautiful shepherdess stories on a girl from Pololac who was killed by her. Clark quotes 21 references in his study. What coincidental patterns she weaves. For example, Stevenson carefully includes her in his famous Travels with a Donkey and the Savant written in 1879, in particular admiring her bravery in attacking in daylight a party of couriers armed with pistols and swords. His summation is incomparable. Quote, If all wolves had been as this wolf, they would have changed the history of man. Unquote. Then, by 1886, he writes Jekyll and Hyde. We will never know if his werewolf-like theme, changing hairy hands, etc., was based on Labette, but it is reasonable to conclude that she played a part. The book opened as a play in London in 1888, just as Jack the Ripper simultaneously started his, compared with Labette, meager series of five murders. In the war, German troops destroyed two villages where Labette prowled, and a chance German bomb on Bournemouth hit the house in which Stevenson had died. Some further examples of what we call coincidences. The old oak table on which this article has been written was made by Filmer Sons, Burner Street, for the home of Dr. Langdon Down, who described Down syndrome in 1866. His Kingston-upon-Thames mansion, Normansfield, became and still is a hospital. 
Some say the Ripper was a medical man. An alley off Burner Street is where Elizabeth Stride died of a severed windpipe, and Burner Street itself was a center of Ripper activity. Incidentally, Burner is an old French verb for to mock or make fun of. Some do say the Ripper, usually described as about five feet seven inches tall, was a woman. There was talk of Jill the Ripper at the time, and who had more motive for killing those sad, loose ladies than someone whose husband or son had been ruined by them. Confusing, but can we admit the concept of infinite situations created to allow all possible connections? A long way from our simple bet, or is it? Only a god could create such a complicated and extensive system, so perhaps Gabriel Florent, wordy bishop of Mend, was not wrong after all when he, like Abbe Porchet, referred to her in his famous mandate as, quote, the scourge of God, unquote, and attributed supernatural, indeed heavenly powers to her. Another author apparently influenced by Libet was Jacob Ludwig Grimm of Brothers Grimm fame, who published Red Riding Hood as Rotkapschen in approximately 1812, a work recognized as having deep significance. He had been librarian to Jerome Bonaparte, being expert in antiquities and mythology. Not that Labette was a myth. Her all the better to eat you with was backed up by real teeth. Incidentally, the first clearly recorded Red Riding Hood fairy story is attributed to a Frenchman, Charles Perrault, a great classical historian. It appeared in his book Stories of Times Past in 1697. The famous Nostradamus, in spite of his Latinized pen name, was a Frenchman named Michel de Nostradame, born 1503 in Provence, who spent most of his life studying, working in, and traveling between places later associated with Labette, such as Avignon. Labette was widely reported in the Avignon Gazette. And Montpierre, the city from which the military hunt for Labette was directed by the Count of Montcalm, a cautious but capable organizer, who handled very delicately an official request that the local population be armed against Labette with weapons from his arsenals. One of Nostradamus's prophecies for mid-18th century France states, quote, Mars threatens us with the belligerent force. Blood will be made to spread out seventy times. The church will grow, suffer harm, and more to those who would listen to nothing of them, unquote. Not too far out, was he, especially as there is nothing else obviously relevant to this particular prophecy. Allow him another one. Quote, the lost thing hidden for so many centuries is discovered. Pasteur will be honored almost as demigod. Dishonor shall come by other winds when the moon finishes her great cycle. Unquote. Be careful with that cloning. In the Place des Cordiers, Machival, there is, by the sculptor Aricoste, a contemporary-style statue bringing out her cunning brutality, but Labette was never seen there, so why they have a statue is another mystery. Perhaps they are jealous of the towns and villages she really did haunt. Mon Dieu! They have une bête, and we do not! Shades of Clochemurel. The inscription claims the statue to be her, but in fact, it is of only the deformed animal killed by Jean Chastel. So perhaps it is just a cunning, spoiling act. 
they even held a bet exhibition in the Marie, the town hall, at Mauvaisjol in 1958. Those French. The church at Saint-Albain-sur-Lamignon has Le Bet as its weathercock. In memoriam, as in life, she remains inaccessible and knows just which way the wind is blowing. Most parts of the world take particular stories or legends to heart, hero or beast, distilling them out from all the rest to reflect exactly the character of the country. In England, we have King Arthur and Robin Hood. In America, they have Mickey Mouse and Davy Crockett. In France, Labette is still alive because she represents the tough Auvergne landscape and its independent people who often have had to fight occupying troops and oppressive bureaucracy. Maybe it's not too late for her to take an evening stroll around the streets of expense account restaurants in Brussels. Bon appétit, bet. Well, what do you think she was? The question bet students fear. It always feels undignified and rude simply to answer, I don't know. Some modern experts in wolves who never hunted her think she must have been a wolf, but hunters on the spot at the time held very different opinions, as did the cripples suffering in squalor and poverty from her blurringly fast, wide-ranging attacks. Any article on the bet would be incomplete unless it clearly stated the opinion of Abbe Pierre Pouchet, the meticulous author of by far the greatest and longest book on the subject. Porchet's interpretation of the mystery is entirely religiously based, sober, and critical. His concept is, La Bette was probably just the deformed, wolf-like animal killed by Jean Chastel in 1767, but that it had been aided by God as a scourge to correct human wickedness, being brought on specifically by bad behavior and unacceptable changes in church ritual. This heavenly aid, not her being a monster, explained to Porsche her power and invulnerability. He repeats several times that she was something very abnormal. Quote, Her cunning, skill, and mobility, even her very existence, were completely beyond human understanding. Unquote. There are many different views on what she was. About 20 books have been written, and most of the other authors do not agree with Porsche, although the highly respected Gabriel Ferrand, Bishop of Mende at the time of Labette, did. There are also differing opinions among authors on Labette as to the character of the Chastels, father and son. Porsche records Jean Chastel as being a man of very good character, whereas, for example, Chevalet, in his semi-fictional novel, regards him with suspicion even to the extent of surmising he might have been involved in some deception or crossbreeding involving hyena. It is alleged he had been a prisoner and tortured in the Middle East. Incidentally, the hyena species, which hunts as much as it scavenges, is genetically more similar to cat than dog, being of the feline family Phelaeodea, which certainly opens up the possibility of a terribly formidable crossbreed, such as hyena and big cat, in any event, the Chastel name is closely associated with the Labette mystery, but whether for good or evil has never become clear. To answer a difficult question like the identity of Labette, try shooting sighting shots at the two extremes and hope your third shot lands, German Navy style, correctly in the middle. At one extreme, let us say she never existed. 
being only rumor arising from attacks by a few large wolves, which may have been crossbred or deformed, and arise in cases of rabies. The Jesuits may have invented her to shepherd members of their flock back into loyalty to the church, which was under political pressure from 1761 onwards. Some Huguenot, terribly persecuted and almost wiped out by the Jesuits in the past, welcomed her as an excuse to be armed. Hotheads of all types used her, ultimately successfully, to foment revolution. Even Louis XV might have taken advantage of the opportunity to send his troops to an increasingly unruly district. All these possibilities have been repeatedly analyzed in literature on Libet. On the other hand, we have graves and 100 corpses, a lot compared with the modest scores of most serial killers. We have hundreds, maybe thousands, of individual and collective eyewitnessings, sometimes by whole diocese en masse, intelligent French people of all ranks reporting to every type of state and religious bodies. We have a vast quantity of manuscripts, diagrams, and other records authenticated by the highest possible religious, military, and state bodies, and by respected individuals, such as ministers, dukes, and generals. Conspirators probably could not have murdered 100 people over four years and fabricated all the evidence without being suspected at least once. The more likely situation is that all the parties took what advantage they could of the existence of a real beast rather than inventing one when there was no need to. At the other extreme, we could accept that she was something unique in recorded human experience, an alien, mutant, or surviving prehistoric monster. Only such explanations fully satisfy the records of her speed, elusiveness, and cunning. You can, of course, choose to dismiss Libet as merely a large wolf, but you will find those two very uncomfortable words, and yet, keep coming to mind. It is for the reader to decide from the unbiased information honestly presented here, and any obtainable from other sources, where between the two extremes the truth lies. Nurs nicht den Tüffel an die Wand meling. Talk of the devil, and he will appear. Whatever it or she was, something strong, fast, and clever painted the French countryside red two centuries ago without being caught. A warning, perhaps, against genetically creating intelligent beings who regard humans as free lunches, not lords of creation. To the explanation for this particular naughty lady of shady lanes, the only limitation is your imagination. After two hundred years, just a faint echo remains of the terrible shadow Labette cast in the eighteenth century. So should she still be feared? Walk thoughtfully alone in a darkening wood, or on misty Bodmin Moor, and find the answer. When twigs crack, don't whistle. I've been battling this sore throat for about the last three days, so I think I've, I must have got Omicron. Oh. No no biggie. Right. <laughs> We're back. I hope everyone enjoyed that. Let's talk a little bit, Tom. I don't, we don't need a huge amount of discussion because it was kind of a long piece. But, um, you know, this isn't something that was just a fantasy. There were nearly 300 people were killed in southern France between 1764 and 1767. It was well documented. Um, what's interesting, I pulled up some notes on this so we could discuss it, but uh, 
Now, talked about, not only was the Beast of Jovedon said to prefer attacking women and children, which, you know, if it were a Sasquatch-type creature, um, we hear this often, you know, with them, you know, sort of kind of gravitating towards towards women and children, and which a predator would do. Now, you know, in the stories, they, they use a lot of wolf or hyena references. I think, Tom, it really goes to when we look at the, the Bigfoot subject. There's a lot of stuff out there, a lot of different interpretations by eyewitnesses. And I think it's, it goes back to that frame of reference that people have. They give lots of descriptions. But there's a couple of big points here that really stick out and that sort of take it away from the wolf category. Number one, wolves are typically in packs. And there was no mention throughout any of these stories about wolf packs. Um, now, he talks again when I talked about it, uh, kind of gravitating towards women and children. Uh, says, and above all, small girls, according to first-hand accounts published in the press, and often removed the victim's head and drank all their blood, leaving nothing behind but a pile of bones. And that sort of reminds me of the Minnesota Iceman. Sure because, does. you know, when Frank Hansen, when he came upon the, the creatures with the deer, what were they doing? The animal was down, it was dead, they were drinking the blood. We've heard other reports of stories where uh, supposedly there were some miners, and we'll have to find those stories and do those on a show. And either Southern Oregon or Northern California <clears throat> from the late 1800s, where you know people saw the miners, and then one day they found them with their heads all missing. So um, that's kind of interesting too. But they they use a lot of different descriptions in here, and. Uh, and this is interesting now. <clears throat> when they talk about the cry, it was more like a horse neighing than a wolf howling. And they talk about the size of the creature being like the size of a donkey. Well, that's certainly not a wolf. No, it isn't. And you know, the other thing that's important to understand is even, even, uh, and this is in a rural area uh, in Europe, everybody knows what a wolf looks like. I mean, it's not limited to Europe, but certainly in that part of France, they would have been familiar with wolves and they would have been familiar with dogs. And, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head. They're grappling. It's outside of their frame of reference. So they're trying to categorize it. What is this thing? Yeah, there were some really bizarre descriptions. Um, I was just looking at here. Let's see, because they talked about... Uh, and, they, and they were all different, you know, these different posters and things. And they have, uh, this one says, now this is interesting also, the coloration, reddish-brown. This is reddish-brown with a dark ridged stripe down its back. Uh, resembles a wolf slash hyena, but big as a donkey. Exactly, That's yeah. really bizarre. Now, of course, they had some diff different editions, but... Uh, well, here's here's kind of what I attribute that to. You're dealing with a time when, you know, I, I don't think people are scientifically or clinically minded as we are today. Matter of fact, I know they're not. Um, and so it's, you know, you got people with wild descriptions and they're, you know, there's, there's going to be room for, I don't want to say exaggeration, but embellishment or, you know, that sort of thing. There, but nonetheless, absolutely. like you said, it, it's a well-documented situation that occurred over a period of a little over three years, killing 300 people. And, 
even though it was never positively identified. One of the accounts that I found interesting is there is more than one attack at a time. Now, we know what a pack of wolves pack of wolves moving a wolf pack mm-hmm. a bigfoot we've said over and over again we're not saying this is but i'm just saying it's interesting there's, there's some parallels one of them is sasquatch is never almost never alone right that they're they are in a group and you know they talk about there's a couple of instances where they recorded more than one attack at a time so you know, it's interesting. I don't know. It's going back a little bit to those descriptions and the differences. So, you know, like you said, people knew what wolves were all too well. Uh, so we had this first description, and another one was um, by the time it got to the papers in Paris, uh, there were descriptions things like uh, there was one here from 1764. It says the beast looked more looking more like a quadrupedal kangaroo than a wolf or a hyena. Uh, and then here's another one. Uh, let's see. Let me go here because they talk because the king, King Louis the Fifteenth, sent out. You know, they offered a reward of what people would have been paid an entire year. So everybody in the world, including soldiers and, and professional hunters, were going out looking for the things, but nobody could find it, which is interesting. Um, Sounds they, familiar. They did shoot an enormous wolf, uh, and I and apparently got its. Uh, mate and cub, but the attacks continued, so it wasn't those animals. I was trying to find, there was another kind of a bizarre, oh, here it is. <laughs> this description is completely different. Uh, depicts the beast as a semi-erect reptilian lion. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, and it's the reptilian lions have always kind of made me nervous. You know, I've always been scared of those things. <laughs> well, you know, what made me think of all this in, in this time period was the latter part, but we go back even further to the Dark Ages, uh, and I'm ta- referring to the Woodwows, which was well-documented, and and they talk about it making its appearance apparently in uh, whatever documentation around the 12th century, which is a long time. These creatures have been around a long, long time. And this is interesting also. Uh, the Legend of the Wild Man, now they call it, the Woodwos are also known as the Wodwos or the Wild Man of the Woods, which is very interesting because when you go to North America, uh, the Chinooka and some of those other native names refer to are referred to as the Wild Man or Wild Woman of the Woods. So a very similar description. Um, but this was all over in, in literature and artwork and architecture of medieval Europe. Um, said the fact, the legend of the wild men so permeated, permeated the Middle Ages that Carl Linnaeus, a famous Swedish taxonomist who laid the foundation for our modern, for our modern biological naming system, created the classification known as Homo ferris, which assumed the existence of the woodwos. According to Linnaeus's writings, Homo ferris was a bestial creature that had human-like features but was covered in hair and moved on all fours. Again, you know, you can make the connection to the Beast of Jovedon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very much so. Um, and, you know, and here's the thing. When you talk about a semi-erect reptilian lion for a description, I mean, there's no such thing. So, again, um, you're dealing with people's imagination and, you know, that sort of thing and, and retelling the story so, 
you know, if you if you're seeing this creature that you know it's you know like the Sasquatch at times it's on all fours and mm-hmm. then you see it suddenly jump up on all twos, you know, sure, your imagination can run wild. I, I think you know I'm sure people were fairly superstitious during the time period also, but which probably come in with some of these uh, different ways of thinking about it. So. I guess before we wrap up, you know, it's one of those, you know, our guess is as good as yours. Um, so we'll leave it in your laps, folks, and uh, let you think on all this. But uh, I think that's about it for us, Tom, unless you have anything further. No, that's it. I think this is an interesting story. So one of my favorites. All right, folks, we're going to wrap this up here and uh, leave this for your consideration, of course. And stay tuned for the uh, weekend show. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.